Welcome to Messages and More, a podcast channel of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. This channel plays our weekly sermons and other content relevant to our church community. Good morning. If you have not met me yet, or if you weren't here earlier, I'm Bruce Struxma. I'm the senior pastor here. And uh, ladies, thank you. Thank you for playing for us this morning. And thank you to our choir and my lovely wife for leading us in worship this morning. It's not often I get to publicly thank her. So thank you. Thank you for doing that. Um, I have lots of opportunities I should do that, but uh, I, I can't miss this one this morning specifically. Um, but yeah, welcome, and welcome to those of you who are joining us online. I know there's people home with illness, people who are traveling. Uh, thank you for joining us as we celebrate Christmas, as we celebrate the birth of our Savior uh, this morning. And shameless plug, don't forget, we also have a Christmas Eve service this evening. Uh, it is different than the service we're doing this morning. Uh, no judgment if you have chosen this one instead of that one, or maybe there's some of you out there listening online who chose that one instead of this one. Uh, no judgment. Uh, we'd love to see you one way or another today if you're in town and available. But since we've been looking at this series, this Now Not Yet this uh, Christmas series that's kind of been looking at some kind of lesser known passages, kind of some unique historical passages. We spent more time maybe in the Old Testament as we've looked at the story of Christmas than maybe we have in the traditional Christmas passages. And so if you're visiting with us this morning, uh, we're gonna be looking at some older passages again. And, and kind of the idea of the now, not yet, is this idea that, that God was at work early on Ever since sin happened, God had a plan. God had a plan to fix it. And all throughout Israel's history, all throughout our history, God has this habit of saying things and, and then those things come true. And then we realize later that there was even more to it. And we use the example the first week of a gift. And, and a gift kind of, the first time you experience that gift is when it shows up under the Christmas tree. And all of a sudden, as, as a kid, or maybe as an adult, I don't want to assume that only kids get excited about presents under the tree, but as, an, as, a, as a person, you find that gift under the tree and you, you get excited because you know there's now a gift. That is what is known. And then maybe throughout the process, you, you do some exploring. And that, that gift is realized a little bit more as you shake it, maybe feel how heavy it is or how light it is. Maybe put some guesses out there as, okay, what did this person, what do they know about me? What might they get that's this heavy or this big? Uh, I, saw, I saw a picture of, um, and, I, and I should have grabbed a screenshot of it, but I saw a picture of this, this, these parents wrapped up a motorcycle and wheeled it into the house. It was entirely wrapped up. Only it wasn't a motorcycle. As their son opened it, he realized it was close. And I thought of all the evil things in this world to do to somebody. But you know, you sit there and you look at it and you're like, oh, I'm getting, you know, maybe you start to think about what you're getting. And, and then the day comes when you open it and you realize again, there's a little bit more to experience with this gift. But even that isn't the full experience, right? Eventually you have to use the gift. You have to put on the socks. You have to play with the toy. You have to eat the food. At some level, you have to, to fully take it in. And that's kind of what we're looking at is that all throughout scripture, God kept saying these things to, to his people about, I'm going to fix what you broke. Sin came into the world. It broke my creation. And I have been about fixing it. And, and all along, I've been giving you these little hints, and these little hints, and these little hints. And we've been kind of looking at it that way. And, and if you grew up in a traditional church, and, and Bethany kind of talked about this in her kid's message, we have the candles. 
right? We have the Advent candles and the four weeks leading up to Christmas, we do hope, we do peace, we do love, we do joy. And this morning, we kind of are doing the Christ candle. That's traditionally what you do on Christmas. We'll do that again this evening. Um, but because we're kind of going to be doing that as well this evening, I thought, I need a new one. I'm going to stick a new theme in there. This is one that's kind of for this year only. Uh, we're going to talk about goodness. Because I do think the goodness of God is something that kind of ties the entire message together. Why is God about redeeming and reconciling this broken world? Because he is good. Because he is good. And so we want to talk a little bit this morning about the goodness of God. We want to talk about his goodness. And I want to look at a couple of, of passages, a couple of interesting, I think, passages that help us see that goodness of God in our Christmas story. And the first one we have, uh, and we've looked at this kind of in a roundabout way a couple of times already. We've mentioned it at least. Uh, we've talked a little bit about Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus and their flight to Egypt, right, after Jesus is born. And, and I want to dig into that one a little bit more because there's an interesting line in that story that we haven't really dug into that I think if we really dig into it in a, in a new way, we'll see again the goodness of God. And so I'm going to read this morning as we start from Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said to the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now this is a well-known, I think a well-known section, but I, I don't know that we've really uh, always take some time to look into these verses. So, so this is an example of a now, not yet. Here we have this, this statement, out of Egypt I will call my son, which is something that was said in the Old Testament to a different group of people that now Matthew is saying, hey, this applies to Jesus, this applies to us. And on its surface level, we go, well, yeah, that makes sense. Out of Egypt, I will call my son. They fled to Egypt, Jesus is God's son. You know, put a nice bow on it and we're done. But it's not, it's not quite that simple. And, and instead of us being disappointed that it's not that simple, I would encourage us to go, maybe if we go a little deeper and dig in a little further, Instead of being disappointed that it's not that simple, I think we'll be excited that God is doing something even bigger than we first thought. And, and so here's where I want us to start. We're going to start in Egypt. And, and remember that Egypt was not a good place, but God's goodness was there. Egypt is not a good place. It, it really never was. Egypt was this place that all throughout Israel's history, God sends people to Egypt for a time. But it's not where they were meant to be because it's not really a good place. Egypt was a pagan location. And so Joseph flees with Jesus and Mary to Egypt. And, and, and here they are in a foreign country, in a foreign land, in a land that does not honor God of the Bible. They have their own gods. They have their own way of worshiping. And Egypt also, along with that, carries with it a connotation. A connotation that, that for some people reading Matthew's gospel, they'd go, oh, Egypt? Really? Ooh. I mean, it's a, I don't want to overemphasize it too much, but it'd be a little bit of, uh, as if I stood up here and said, by the way, I'm going on vacation to North Korea. Really? North Korea? You do know there's a South Korea, Right? Right? There's a lot of connotation that that carries. And, and, and again, I don't want to overemphasize it, but, but, but just kind of keep that idea in your mind. It carries, it carries a connotation. 
If you are Jewish, the land of Egypt is both good and bad. And we see Joseph sold into slavery in Egypt and, and sold into slavery and he, and he goes to prison. But eventually he rises to power, he rises out of a prison and, and he brings his family there. And he brings his family there because it's a place of safety in that moment because there's a drought in Canaan. In the land that they were promised by God, there's a drought and so they go to Egypt for a time. And they, and they stay there for a time, but eventually they'll leave under Moses in the Exodus because it had become untenable for them to stay there, right? Egypt was no longer the place to be for them. But it shows up again and again in Israel's history. Sometimes it's that safe haven, that place that's needed as a refuge. And other times it's, it's, a, it's not a good place. It's not a place that they should be going, that they should be turning. As one uh, biblical historian puts it, Egypt afforded a natural haven for first century Jews. A large Jewish community had lived there for several centuries. And even from Old Testament times, Egypt had often provided a refuge when danger threatened Israel. So here it's the spot that, that time and again, God keeps taking when somebody's in danger, when his people are in danger, he takes, keeps taking them to Egypt and hiding them there. Keeps on taking them there. He keeps on going, I, no matter what the world is trying to do to you, I'm gonna provide safety for you. I'm gonna bring you to this place. And I'm, gonna, I'm gonna stash you away but it also, like I said, it carries a negative connotation too. And not just because of a different belief system. Uh, there's more to it than that because there are times when people turn to, to Egypt for safety when they shouldn't turn to Egypt. When, they, when they're, where they're doing more than looking for physical safety. In 1 Kings verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 40, excuse me, Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam fled to Egypt to Shishak the king and stayed there until Solomon's death. Again, in 2 Kings verse, uh, chapter 25, verse 26. At this, all the people from the least to the greatest, together with the army officers, fled to Egypt for fear of the Babylonians. So that's the one side, that one side where people keep on fleeing there as a place of safety, as a place of refuge, right? We've seen that already. But interestingly for us this morning, I also want to point to Deuteronomy and Moses' words to Israel as they came out of Egypt. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 16. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make, uh, make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. And the command here is interesting because when we look at it, it's tempting to be like, well, they're not to go back that way again, and yet they seem to keep going back that way again. What's the deal? And what, what Moses is getting at, what God is getting at, is notice that it's tied to the horses. Because it's tempting to start relying on ourselves. And that's what he's prohibiting. He's saying, hey, don't rely on your military prowess to save you. Don't go to Egypt and get the best chariot horses and chariots and therefore rely on yourself, rely on me, rely on Yahweh. As a king, don't go back that way, rely on me. And we'll see that played out in Isaiah. Isaiah 31, verse one, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel 
or seek help from the Lord. And so you can see there's this duality, this, this, this distinction, this idea that Egypt is a place where God has stored his people when they've needed protection, but he's saying, hey, but don't rely on them, rely on me. As soon as you cross the line of going, Egypt is the place God is placing us for a time and start to become Egypt is where we find our safety and security, you've crossed a significant line. A Jewish rabbi explains the call not to return to Egypt from Deuteronomy this way. Essentially, there are two exegetical approaches to the prohibition against returning to Egypt, geographical and behavioral. And that's that idea. There's a, there's a distinction between returning there physically and returning there spiritually. Are, are we going there for a time or are we living there for our safekeeping? And so I would turn that around and look at us and say, what's our Egypt? What are the places where God has told us, don't go back there because you rely on that instead of me, that we constantly go back to? Where are those places where instead of turning to God for our hope, to see his goodness, we instead turn to our own capabilities, to our ability to, to enact what we want. So for Joseph and Mary, as well as for the average Jewish person in Israel, the command was to avoid the behavioral turning back to the gods of Egypt. And so then we see Matthew quote from Hosea when he says that Jesus, Joseph, and Mary flee to Egypt. He ties it to Hosea 11.1. 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And so as we look at that verse in its context, we see that what is happening in this moment is Hosea is pointing back to the Exodus and saying, hey, when you were a young country unable to defend yourselves, I put you in Egypt. But then I called you out of there. I called you out of Egypt and said, hey, don't be reliant on Egypt. Be reliant upon me. Come out of Egypt, my people. So why is Matthew quoting this verse? Because if you look at the context of this verse, uh, it's actually the opposite of what we think it is. We see in Hosea's time, the Israelites are about to be hauled off into captivity. They're about to be hauled away into captivity. And in a last grasp for power, the king at the time has turned to Egypt. Full circle. Second Kings chapter 17. This is the context of Hosea 11. But the king of Assyria discovered that Hosea was a traitor. That's the king. For he had sent envoys to So, king of Egypt, and he no longer paid tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. Therefore, Shalmaneser seized him and put him in prison. The king of Assyria invaded the entire land, marched against Samaria, and laid siege to it for three years. So here's the context. Here's the context of Hosea. Out of Egypt I will call my son. Hosea is warning him, don't go back that way. And yet Matthew looks at it and says, see, out of Egypt I will call my son. Mary and Joseph go back that way. And it can seem at odds. And we go, what is, what's the deal? Is either Matthew like completely incompetent as a biblical scholar? The answer is no. Or is there something there that we are missing if we just think it's a magical statement that Jesus had to go to, to Egypt? You know, Jesus had to go to Egypt. It's one of those check boxes he had to fulfill to be Messiah. He's now checked the box, moving on. And I think that's where we like it to be. It's simple. It's easy. 
But I think we're missing the true goodness of God. What does all of this have to do with Mary and Joseph? Matthew is citing Hosea, who warns the king to not fall victim to seeking safety from human means, but to trust God. And for the king of Israel at the time, it doesn't work. It fails. In their human attempt of appealing to Egypt, where God told them not to go, it ultimately leads to their downfall. But for Joseph and Mary, this passage then is less about Egypt as a location, and that's rather just a trigger for us to see that God is working. And it's more to see the goodness of God at work that instead of relying on Egypt as a kingdom, they are relying on God. God is the one who sends them to Egypt to protect Jesus. Because the context of Matthew is that Herod, the tyrant, has found out that there is a king out there, supposedly, who has heavenly origins. And that is a threat to Herod. And so he is seeking to kill all of the babies. And these magi show up and on the surface seem to spoil it. They go to Herod and they go, by the way, there's a king. We saw his star, heavenly origins. And we're here to worship him. And Herod goes, oh, Interesting, please tell me when you find this king so that I may worship him with no intention of worshiping him. And when he finds out where the baby is, he instead orders the massacre of all of the babies in Bethlehem. And it's likely that Mary and Joseph used those gifts from the Magi to flee to Egypt as a place of refuge. And instead, we see the goodness of God providing refuge again for the promise. For the promise that God would reconcile his people, he is once again protecting that promise and saying, no mere human threat will thwart my plans. And so when we see Egypt as a mixed bag, Egypt was not a good place, but God's goodness was there. Not because of Egypt, but because of God. God's goodness goes with Mary and Joseph. So for us today, again, where are we looking to our own means for safety and salvation? Where is our Egypt? And maybe our Egypt is in our financial well-being or in our grades at school or in our job. Where are those places that instead of trusting the Lord to provide, when we hit a crisis of faith, when we hit a crisis of life, where do we look? Do we look to make it on our own or do we trust that God is good? All of those things could be our Egypt. And where is our Egypt that God may send us back to that we don't want to go? I don't think Mary and Joseph were very excited about that trek back to Egypt. So where is that place that maybe God is saying, look, I need to send you here for a time. Maybe for some of us that's moving back in with mom and dad. Maybe for some of us, that's that job that we thought we were too good for that all of a sudden we have to go back to. What are those things? Where is our Egypt that maybe God might be calling us back and saying, for a time I need you to go there, but trust me to be good even in that location. Egypt was not a good place, but God's goodness was there. So that's our first passage this morning. I want to look at another one, and this is maybe a little bit even more unusual, especially for Christmas Eve. Bear with me. Our second passage is that well-known, well-known Christmas story of Balaam and the talking donkey. I know, I know, you're probably sick of hearing this passage on Christmas. It's so common. We're going to look at Numbers, also a common book to look at on Christmas. But I think there's something here that I think we miss. 
And by the way, this passage actually was the inspiration for this entire series. The now, not yet, I think is so clear here in Numbers. And I think God's goodness and his forever plan for his people is so clear in this passage that I I can't help but look at it. Because Balaam was not a good guy. But God spoke goodness through him. Balaam was not a good guy. Okay, this is not a normal story, but it does tie in with God's provision. So we're gonna, we're gonna leave Mary and Joseph for a moment in Egypt and go even further back in Israel's history to the Exodus, to their first departure out of Egypt. So they have fled, they have wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and they are about to enter back into the, pro, or into the promised land. And Balak, not Balaam, Balak stands in their way. Balak is the king. And Balak sees Israel spread out before them. And what I think is so fascinating is that if you read through Uh, Israel's history time and again, and centuries even later, countries around Israel keep on freaking out about what happened to Egypt. I mean, we're talking, at this point, they've been in the wilderness wandering around aimlessly, seemingly aimlessly, for 40 years. And Balak's thing is, yeah, but did you see what that God did to Egypt? I don't want that God in my country because then I have to follow that God. So I want to stop that God and those people from coming into my country because I saw what he did to Egypt. I don't want that. And so he goes to Balaam and he says, hey, come and pronounce curses over these people. Maybe if you come in, you're a a guy who works with various deities of the time. Uh, You're supposedly an expert in deity manipulation. That's really what Balaam's uh, prowess was, if you will. He says, come and and, pronounce curses over Israel. And Balaam at first, you know, realizes that this God is different. He does his normal manipulation techniques and God actually shows up and he's like, whoa, this is not how this is supposed to work. A real God is not supposed to be here. And he says, I'm not, I'm not going with you. And finally, God says, go. Hence the talking donkey shows up and says, no, for real. Uh, I can make donkeys talk, so you better listen to me. Okay, I will listen. I will not do anything you've told me not to do. And we can look at this story and go like, wow, this is like Balaam's conversion moment. He's like coming around. Because when he shows up, he doesn't pronounce curses. Instead, he pronounces seven blessings, which is a total blessing. Seven is a biblical number for totality. There's total blessing going on here. And we can be like, wow, Balaam's Balaam's turned a corner. But we know later in Numbers 31, 16, which I don't have on the screen, but you can look it up on your own. We see that Balaam, after this experience, still tries to entice the Israelites into pagan worship. He convinces the women of the land to go and start intermarrying with the Israelites so that you can draw them into our gods, which we can control. So Balaam isn't converted so much as he goes, I've realized that's a real God. I'm going I'm to play fair with him, but, but not his people. I, I can't manipulate the God, but I, I can manipulate the people. So Balaam is not a good guy, but God speaks goodness through him. And I'm going to focus on his fourth blessing, which is in Numbers 24, verses 15 through 19. Then he spoke his message. The prophecy of Balaam, son of Beor, the prophecy of one whose eye sees clearly, the prophecy of one who hears the word of God, who has knowledge from the Most High, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate, and whose eyes are opened. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. 
A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the people of Sheth. Edom will be conquered. Seir, his enemy, will be conquered. But Israel will grow strong. A ruler will come out of Jacob. Now, if you're Balak, these are awful words. There is nothing good in this for you at all. And, and, but we also see in here the very clear now, but not yet. Because what Balaam is actually seeing, which is from God, this is God's goodness being spoken through a not good source, is he is saying, hey, there is going to become a leader. And not just any leader. There's a lot of imagery in here, when it's, especially when it comes to the star and the scepter. And so I want to focus on those and kind of track them through Israel's history and even through the birth of Jesus and into our future. Because that star and that scepter are significant terms. And so we're going to start with the star. Verse 17 said, a star will come out of Jacob. The now for the people of Israel. And again, they're not necessarily hearing this. This is more for Balak. Later on, it gets recorded into Israel's history as they hear about it. But in this moment, the star, the star is the sign of God's hand on their people. The sign that their God is the true God. Again, Balak is trying to manipulate the God he doesn't want to submit to. Balaam is trying to do the same thing. They acknowledge this God is different. We, we can't manipulate this God. And there's a tie-in here with the star. But the not yet, I think we can see this really clear and we, we can easily connect it to our Messiah and our Christmas story. And in fact, Israel connected these prophecies to the Messiah early on, well before Jesus. They knew this was talking about their Messiah because their Messiah would come and their Messiah would come from heaven. Their Messiah would be different. Their Messiah wouldn't be a normal leader. Even David wasn't quite up to this level. They knew there was a heavenly origin. And the Magi seek out the star and have the audacity to stand in front of the current king, Herod, who has no heavenly origins and in fact doesn't even have Davidic origins, doesn't have any really historic or biblical claim to the throne, but claims it anyway. They have the audacity to stand in front of this tyrant and say, by the way, there's a heavenly ordained king that you've known about for a long time. The star has told us. The one who has not taken power, but the one who was born with power that you can't even begin to comprehend. And we see the star clearly in our Christmas story, and we see it moving forward, but we also can look forward ourselves. Like the people of Israel looking to a Messiah, we look forward. And the star is a sign for us looking forward. The not yet for us, we see in Revelation. Revelation chapter 22, verses 16 and 17. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. And so we see here that Jesus is saying, I was the star, and I am the star. And I will come again, but you have to submit to me. You have to acknowledge that my origins are not like your origins. I come from heaven in a way that you cannot understand. I have power you cannot begin to comprehend. So come, 
Come to me. And this morning, our call is to come to the star, to the star of Bethlehem, to the birth of Jesus, to remember that this Savior who is the bright morning star, who someday will make right all of the earth, right now is lying in a manger as a baby. A baby born to die. The bright and morning star heralds a new day, a new day so sorely needed by John's hard-pressed readers and for us. And for us, we stand here this Christmas praising God for the birth of Jesus, the promised Messiah, the Emmanuel, God with us, and yet waiting for his return. Later on in Revelation 22, verse 20, Jesus says, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The star. All the way back from Balaam, we get this goodness of God that is promised not only for Israel and their Messiah, but for all of us, that Jesus Christ is coming soon and we have the birth of Jesus to look at to remind us that Jesus wasn't just born for this moment. He was born for all of us. But in Balaam, we also read of the scepter. Again, back in verse 17 of Numbers, a scepter will rise out of Israel. For now, for the now, for the people of Balaam's time, for the people standing in the wilderness, the scepter is the sign of the near future. It's the sign of judgment on Moab. All those words about Moab will be crushed, Edom will be crushed, that's, a, that's the scepter. A king holds a scepter to make his judgments, his proclamations, his rulings. And Luke, last week, when he looked at Matthew, talked a lot about justice and righteousness and a king who will rule that way, and that's that scepter. And Israel was looking for that. This was their promised land that had been taken from them. And they're looking for that now. But there's also language in there that we read that even for them, they understood is this is not just a short-term promise. This king is gonna come who will hold the scepter for generations of Israel. In other words, we're not just looking for somebody to come in like Joshua who will lead Israel into the promised land and then step back. They're looking for a king. They're looking for a long-term king. And we have the same thing. We're looking for a long-term king. We are waiting still for our King, our Messiah to return and to set right all of these things that we see as we look around and we see a broken world. We see the pain and the suffering in, in, in every country. And we are still waiting for that righteousness and justice to come. And this promise of a scepter is an eternal one and we see it in Balaam and we see it in David and we see it in Jesus when he comes, but he kind of twists it a little bit, saying, don't think this is a political scepter only. This is a spiritual scepter. And once again, we see it, our hope, our not yet, in Revelation. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the wine presses of, fury, of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has his, this name written, King of Kings and Lord 
of lords. And it's tempting for us as we look around at our world today, we want that. We want Jesus to come back that way. And he is, and it's tempting for us to look around and, and like, like the people of Israel, try and do it on our own. Try and build our own Egypt. Try and build our own uh, turnabout of God's kingdom. To bring it about how we want, when we want, in our way. In the same way that with Jesus, people were trying to do it too. They were trying to shove their scepter into his hand. He said, that's not the scepter I'm here to raise. I'm building a different kingdom. And someday Jesus will show up and he will make right all that is broken in this world. And our call is to remember that it's his scepter. He is the one coming in righteousness and justice, not us. The scepter shows absolute authority and power, but as one Christian thinker puts it, there is no vindictiveness, no lust of conquest. The scepter of God stands against injustice, not trying to win power for itself, but to make right the world. The scepter of God is a faithful and true scepter, standing against sin, not trying to manipulate others. Stands in direct contrast to Balaam and Balak. And we see this scepter lived out in the life of Jesus, who was born in humility. And we remember Philippians 2. Who, speaking of Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so here, as we look towards a Jesus who's coming again with a scepter to make right a broken world, we also remember that he was born to die, that Jesus' way of making that right was being born in the humility of a manger and dying on the shame of a cross. That's the scepter. And anytime we try and take that scepter out of Jesus' hand and make the world right in our own eyes, we are putting ourselves up in place of him. And it is his scepter to, to wield. And so it's, it's, it's hard when we look around and we see in our workplace, in our school, in our family, and we see unrighteous people prosper, it seems. And it seems that we aren't. And we can cry out and we should cry out, God, where are you and what are you doing here? But we should not reach for that scepter ourselves. And our final reminder this morning is this. We don't do that. We don't take that scepter. We don't take that star. We don't flee back to our Egypts because God is good all the time. Even when it doesn't feel like it to us, God is good all the time. When Mary and Joseph fled to Egypt, I'm sure that did not feel good, but God's goodness was in Egypt. And when Balaam is prophesying these things, it, it, it probably felt good to Israel then, but they knew Balaam wasn't a good guy, and yet God's goodness was there. And so as, as we conclude this morning, I'm going to invite the rest of the worship team up here as, as we conclude as the Apostle John will put it at the start of his gospel in John 1, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. John is starting his gospel clearly paralleling Genesis. He's reminded us that God has sought to dwell with us since the very beginning. And he talks about God coming and tabernacling is the word he uses, 
referencing the temple and the tabernacle, literally trying to live among us despite all of our sin, all of our brokenness, all of our selfishness, God has sought to dwell with us since the very beginning. Because God's goal has been the same since we fell in sin, to reconcile humanity back to himself. God's goodness doesn't just show up in the humility of the manger. God's goodness has been around since the beginning. It is who God is. God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. And Paul links all of this together and paints a picture of the ultimate goodness of God in Philippians 2, where he tells us, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. And so once again, when we see the manger, we must see the cross. Remember that what God has started ever since creation fell away from him, God is gonna make right in his time and in his way. But we need to stand there and trust that God is good even when his goodness is not as apparent as we would like it to be. And we'll end this morning by going back to Mary and Joseph in Egypt. And in that moment as they sat there wondering what God was doing, they trusted that God was still good because God had provided a way for them to get to Egypt and God would bring them back. And when Hosea said, out of Egypt I will call my son, the reason Matthew references it It's because he says, just like God has continued to provide and care for his people, God continued to provide and care for the Messiah. Because God is going to be about what God is going to be about. And it is our job to look to the Messiah and say, come. And to humble ourselves. So we should seek to worship Christ like the Magi not to try and manipulate the gospel for our own ends like Herod. And we should seek to follow Christ like the shepherds and not try and control him like Balaam. So we share Christ this season with others, not by merely saying Merry Christmas, but by following the example of Christ's humility, by sharing the message of God's goodness, hope, joy, peace, and love with others. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for your goodness. God, I thank you that throughout your history, throughout your story, your goodness is so apparent. That we see your goodness in the Old Testament, in your provision for Joseph, in your provision for Israel, in your provision for David. And God, we see your provision for us in the birth of your Messiah. And God, that you would let nothing stand in the way of Jesus Christ being born and being born to die for our sins, to bring us back to you. So Lord, help us to take that good message, that good gospel, and share it with those around us this season. I pray all this in your name. Amen. Would you stand as we close in worship this morning? As we end this morning, a couple of quick things. Uh, again, I would invite you all to come back. Uh, tonight, if you're around, uh, join us for our Christmas Eve candlelight service, uh, Festival of Lessons and Carols at 5 p.m. back here. Uh, 
love to have you come back and join us. Uh, next week, we are starting our new uh, series that will take us through the month of January and a little bit into February, looking at the book of Judges, uh, calling it Case Studies in Chaos. Uh, if you have any chaos in your life, I would encourage you to, to join us for that. Maybe there's some ways that we can look at God's word and see, see where God is at work. Um, beyond that, thank you uh, personally uh, for my family and the rest of the staff. Thank you for your generosity um, in, in a Christmas gift to us as a staff this year, but also just in your funding of the ministry of this church that we can look for opportunities to spread the goodness of God, not only this season, but year round. Um, we do that through all the giving you do of your time, your energy, as well as your financial resources. So thank you for that. And thank you for continuing to support the ministry of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. I am going to uh, read our benediction uh, from, from Luke chapter 2. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Enjoy the goodness of God this season. Amen. Go in peace. Thank you for listening to Messages and More, a ministry of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. To find out more, visit us online at wevfree.org.